What's the story behind the story? We'll find out on Dropping In. Our guests are today's original thinkers, conversations that spark new ways of seeing what's going on. We bring it all to the table. Diverse perspectives, controversy, loving, and singular voices. Magically, stories reveal the common threads that link us. Experience the joys, the fist pumps, the detours, and the hard-won truths of those who blaze the trail so that we might do the same. And now, here's your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. It's the beautiful autumn between crisp mornings and humidity-free afternoons, not to mention kaleidoscope leaves, 20-pound pumpkins, campfire perfume, and a dozen other joys. The here and now is heaven on earth, says Sam Venable, a reporter for the Knoxville, Tennessee, New Centennial. But there's the distant rumble of thunder that the holidays are not far away. Thanksgiving, Hanukkah, Christmas, Kwanzaa, they're coming and they're triggering. So mental health issues come to the fore uh, during these traditional family times. And here to talk about it today with us is Vivian Conan, author of Losing the Atmosphere, a memoir, a baffling disorder, a search for help, and the therapist who understood. Hello, Vivian. Great to have you with us. Thank you, Diane. It's nice to be here. I'm very grateful for you to join us and also for your book, Losing the Atmosphere. It's a hero's journey. It's quite an arc of being honest and writing in the first person. I wondered how it was for you to write this book, um, being yourself, not as an outsider, as many therapy books are written about patients. You wrote this in your own voice and spoke as yourself. How was that for you? Um, Well, first let me say that the book took 25 years to write, um, and I was not the same person at the end of those 25 years that I was in the beginning. So um, I was writing, I I was a work in progress, and I was writing myself as I was being born myself. Um, When I started writing the book, I originally was not going to write it personally. I just wanted to write uh, even an article, not a book, to to let people know um, what it was like to live with what is now called dissociative identity disorder, but was then called multiple personality disorder. And it was not Mm -hmm. treated very well in the press. It was treated sensationally. And I wanted people to know that we were just ordinary people who were, you know, getting over childhood trauma and were just trying to live regular lives, like go to work, uh, go shopping for food, have friends. And so when I brought that article, and I, to back it up, I put not very much about me. I did not think I was an interesting, interesting person to write about because I was just the girl next door. So I, I mm. just put in a lot of clinical research about dissociation. And my writing workshop, the people in my writing workshop came back and said, this is all very interesting, but we want more about you. We don't care about the theory. And so little by little, I I started putting more and more of myself into it. And then they said, well, why don't you write a memoir, not a book? 
So I really didn't know I was an interesting person or, or someone would want to read about me. But the writing workshop is what encouraged me to do that, and now I am so glad that I did. So the only I clinical... Too. Thank you. The only clinical explanation in the book is the afterward by my therapist. The rest of the book is all what I experienced, and it goes from birth to age 65. Just so your audience knows, I'm now 79. Um, so this was, I wrote Oh, my gosh. You, okay. I was I was wondering actually I was wondering I mean felt you know we were somehow contemporaries because you left off at around sixty five in the book but I'm very grateful that you took this hero's journey and I've often wondered throughout the book um, about the therapeutic value of your writer circle I'm going to give our listeners a short biography of you Vivian um, I congratulate you on this book the courage that it took to um, metamorphosize and go into yourself and bring us into your life. That is the essence of it. And um, caring about you as a person was what brought it to life. So a short biography of Vivian Conan. You're a writer, librarian, and IT business analyst who lives in Manhattan. You may be retired for some from some of these roles, but I'm reading now. A native New Yorker, you grew up in a large Greek-Jewish clan in Brooklyn, graduated from Brooklyn College, and you hold a master's degree from Pratt Institute and Baruch College. Your work has appeared in the New York Times, New York Magazine, Lilith, Narratively, and Ducks. You received a 2007 Fellowship in Nonfiction Literature from the New York Foundation for the Arts and a 2019 Simon Rockauer Award from the American Jewish Press Association. You sing with the Peace of Heart Choir, which performs free for communities in need, and you've mentored teenage writers as a volunteer with Girls Right Now. Losing the Atmosphere is your first book. I say this biography in order to give people an understanding of the level of competence with which you function in your life and to then um, help us understand going through as what you say was never portrayed kindly in the press or movies for that matter um, and multiple personality disorder now that it's become dissociative identity disorder it, tell, it speaks volumes as to how the evolution has occurred since you started writing this, that we just learned 25 years ago. Have we become more aware and more, more compassionate, more accepting of mental illnesses such as DID? How has the ARC followed your book writing process? Well, um, in the, when I started writing it, the, there was this thing, PTSD, it was the, the Vietnam veterans coming back. It was, it was the first time that people were realizing that trauma could cause psychological problems that lasted long after the trauma was gone. But um, it, and, and so people with dissociative identity disorder would compare themselves to PTSD, but it's really different. And the understanding has grown over the years that uh, 
the dissociative identity disorder is a result of childhood trauma that was usually at the hands of someone the child depends on for food and clothing and shelter. So the child cannot cannot leave home. The child can't escape this situation. So in, in, instead of escaping externally, the child escapes internally by creating walls in, inside, like walling off knowledge of, of abuse or trauma so that other parts of that child are free to go to school or have friends as if nothing's the matter. So... Mm-hmm. The, diff- the PTSD from from war veterans is happens when they're adults, and it's a different, a little bit different, but but it, it's similar, but a little different from what happens in the dissociation from childhood trauma. So that understanding um, evolved even as I was writing the book. But I wasn't thinking yeah. of that while I was writing the book. My 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 writing workshop told me, forget all the theory, just say your story. And I made a conscious decision when I was writing the book that I didn't want the reader to know anything before I knew it. So I wrote, if I was writing about a time when I was six years old or 10, I didn't put in, uh, I wasn't writing from the point of view of an adult looking back and layering meaning on what happened. I wanted the, mm-hmm. we call this in writing workshop, they call it, the reader should be the fly on the wall. So in other words, the reader should be there while it's happening, but nobody sees the reader. The fly on the wall is unobtrusive, but sees everything that's going on. And so I wrote my book in what's, what's called real time, that the reader doesn't know anything before I know it. So I didn't put mm-hmm. any of this theory in. I just told what it was like to live my life, to go to school, to have friends, to... I, I was part of a very large, I still am part of a very large Greek-Jewish clan. Um, my mother was one of nine, eight of whom lived to adulthood. So I have tons of cousins and second cousins. And, you know, I wrote mm-hmm. what it was like to live in the, my large extended family was very warm and very nurturing. My nuclear family was a bit more problematic. And so I write what it was like to navigate the two worlds and also what it was like to be sent to a therapist because I was talking to faces in the mirror who were not mine and how I could not Mm -hmm. relate to the therapist. And I had two versions of the therapist, the the real in-person version who was sitting before me and, and an idealized version in my head that was much easier to talk yeah. to. And she didn't know I had yes. two versions me, of her. And I could... Yes, I think Go this ahead. is where it gets really, it gets really, really interesting. Um, the, the aspect for me that became fascinating and readers of Losing the Atmosphere will be entranced because it is, unfolding in real time without the adult reflections on top. And I think when you're talking about looking, first of all, looking in the mirror to verify yourself, that is something that it does happen, I think, to many of us um, who have endured any type of trauma in childhood. Certainly um, other writers have talked about verifying themselves in the mirror. But 
the um, dissociative identity disorder, which you experience, characterized, I'm reading now from the APA Dictionary of Psychology, characterized by the presence um, in one individual, you, of two or more distinct identities or personality states that each recurrently take control of the individual's behavior. So I just want to say a couple of things. Um, when you were experiencing this and you developed what I would call a self-protection zone, a place where it was not only safe to be in these alternate identities, but a place where people understood you, Vivian. You were seen, you were felt, you were grokked, as they say. I mean, you were really gotten as a person. And that became what you called the atmosphere. I just want to fill readers in as we're talking, too, as to the development of this parallel alternate place, um, which was much more satisfying in so many ways. It was not just an escape. It was a place where you could feel psychologically safe. Um, you mentioned your extended Greek-Jewish family, and the thing I thought was cool about it was that even early on, they lived very close to you, like in close proximity. So it seemed to me that you, you could run down the stairs in the apartment building or go to Aunt Sophia's. I wondered how this extended network helped support you as a child and maybe gave you some stabilization um, until you were old enough to, say, be going to therapy and actually talking to an adult um, about your situation. Well, it, it was it was the fifties. It was the the late forties and the nineteen fifties, and people did not interfere in other families' lives. Like my my aunt, I had a lot of aunts and aunts and uncles, but my mother's most of her most of her siblings were sisters, and they did not. Um, they did not interfere. They knew things that were going on, but it wasn't the policy to interfere. But they always let me into their apartment, and they would say, "Sit down and have dinner." Or if I wanted to sleep, if I, if I, can, I said, "Can I sleep here tonight?" And they said, "Sure, you can sleep." So it was a place. It was a refuge where I was always accepted. I could always get mm -hmm. um, a nice hug. I could always get a meal. My mm. one of my aunts took me to the theater, so it wasn't that they interfered or did anything overtly about my my immediate family situation, but they were there, and I did not have to do anything to prove myself to them. I belonged just by virtue of being part of the family, so that was a very yes. stabilizing thing for me. I, I believe it. Um, just having, you know, kind of normalized contact with relatives. Your father was extraordinarily tyrannical. Um, and you go through the book, um, you know, feeling the pangs of this. You know, it's, it's, you, 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 you absorb the shock of it. Um, very arbitrary rules that he inflicted on you and your brother. And your mother, I think, was more or less absent or she would if, if she would abdicate um, and she also let your father be the, the domineering one so there was kind of a 
sense of abandonment on both parts, I would say. And one of the things that I found hugely valuable about your book was creating this connection between attachment and dissociation. Um, attachment, disturbed attachment and dissociation and how dissociation, meaning you stand above yourself um, metaphorically, you're looking down on yourself or from outside of yourself instead of actually experiencing emotions which might otherwise be too painful. Um, and these parents of yours, you came to have a great deal of compassion for over the course of writing the book. I wondered if you also feel that compassion for yourself and how the book allowed you to maybe develop a sense of compassion for all of these important characters. That's it's very interesting that you say that because I think that in, in my later life while I was writing the book, I did um, try to understand what made my parents into the parents they were, like how their lives before I was born shaped who they were. And so I did come to have understanding of them. Like with my mother, I came to understand while she was still living. So we had a very nice rapprochement. Like she said to me, it's love at second sight. Um, she said this when she was mm-hmm. in her 80s. So that was really nice. With my father, it happened after he died. And I went to the cemetery to look for his parents' graves. But for myself, it took a little longer for me to have compassion for myself than it did to have compassion for my parents. It's a very interesting question you asked. Um, I'm still well, working on it. I'm, 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 I'm there a lot of, I'm, I'm like not where I was. I'm, I'm well along the road, but I'm not 100% there yet. So that's a very, that's a very interesting question. Well, I tell you, we are um, very compassionate for you in reading this book. Uh, we need to take a commercial break right now, but we're going to come back and continue speaking with Vivian Conan, author of Losing the Atmosphere. It's a riveting book on overcoming um, dissociative identity disorder and coming to a place of being comfortable in the world. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. 
send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Vivian Conan, author of Losing the Atmosphere. A short book summary is in order, Vivian. We'll just give listeners a paragraph, um, and I'll read. Um, Born in the 1940s Brooklyn to a father prone to rages and an emotionally erratic mother, Vivian Conan grew up in two different worlds, outside and inside. Outside, she had friends excelled in school, and was close to her cousins and brother. Inside, she saw faces that weren't hers in her bedroom mirror and was surrounded by an invisible atmosphere that bathed her in love and the understanding she craved. Moving between these worlds enabled Vivian to survive her childhood but limited her ability to live fully as an adult. To others, her life seemed rich with work, friends, music, and boyfriends, but her mind and soul were filled with chaos and pain. Neither she nor her therapist could figure out why, and MPD, DID, was your diagnosis, Vivian. I am very um, struck uh, with your memoir, with the role of writing, as you mentioned, your writer's circle, really asking you to tell this story in the first person and attachment. This, you know, you, you spoke about how the, since PTSD, theories, not just theories, but real understanding and compassion for mental illness has evolved so much. Um, and I'd love for you to talk about the attachment of the first three years of life, how deeply emotions are felt um, and but if for you, it fragmented off into the atmosphere where this was the presence of beings who were omniscient of your thoughts and feelings, not detached from them, um, so that you needed to dissociate. Um, talk, talk to us just a little about the importance of attachment, and we can even go into John Bowlby, but... From your point of view, since you're so good at bringing this to life for us, what's the significance of attachment in your history? Well, what, what my book is called Losing the Atmosphere, and the atmosphere was a magic world that I created. It was sort of a, a fantasy world, but I didn't really know that until much later. And I didn't create it um, on purpose. It just came into existence. And the atmosphere was populated with kindly adults who understood me. And at first, they didn't have to be real people. It could be a fairy godmother, or it could have been a bus driver who was nice to me one time. So the atmosphere was populated with people I knew, like a teacher, maybe, and people I didn't know. But the people I knew, I had two versions of them. I had a perfect atmosphere version of them, and then their in-person version was not always so perfect. And there's something that I, I am going to get a little bit technical now, but there's something that, uh, that I read about attachment theory that made me understand the atmosphere, and it's called empathic attunement. And when a baby and a, when a baby is hold, held by the caregiver, usually the mother, but doesn't have to be the mother, there's some kind of communication mm-hmm. that goes back and forth, like. The baby can't talk in words, 
but the baby's upset about something. Maybe the diaper is wet or the baby's hungry or has a stomach ache. And the caregiver has to intuit what is the matter. Like the caregiver needs to be attuned to the baby without words. And so little by little, as that happens and the attunement is mostly right, it's not always perfect, the baby comes to develop a sense of self and, and the baby gets attached to the caregiver. And that, that process got a little bit derailed for me. But mm-hmm. I created my own empathic attunement in this fantasy world. So the atmosphere was populated by people who understood me. They didn't have to do anything to make my situation better. I didn't, they didn't interfere. They just understood me. And that, that sustained me for years. The problem with that was that when I grew older and moved out of that house and no longer needed that, I couldn't get rid of it. It was so I was more mm-hmm. involved with this with this fantasy atmosphere world that I was getting my attachment empathic attunement from. And so ultimately in therapy, my therapist realized that unless we dealt with the atmosphere first, uh, we couldn't deal with mm-hmm. the dissociation because that, so it was, and so he, he figured out that the atmosphere had to do with attachment. Um, I had no idea. And I never, I never really told people about the atmosphere, even early therapists, because I never realized that it was anything strange. To me, it was how my life was. Like, I wouldn't, say to a therapist, I breathe in and out six times a minute because it's so much a part of me that you don't, you don't tell people that. So the atmosphere was so much a part of my world that I never thought to tell anybody about it until much, much later. But this therapist mm-hmm. who finally was able to help me understood that. You know, dismantling it, as you say, you, you grew it um, for a purpose. I mean, the psyche is only doing purposeful things. It's not creating haphazardly. Everything has a reason in the psyche. And the, the you know, empathic attunement that you were lacking, which occurs even through eye contact, you know, through a caregiver, you know, when you listen, when I listened to you and when I was reading your book, I was really... Um, shocked and sort of alarmed at how close this replicates a lot of the ways that we do cope. We look at a dog and we think the dog understands us perfectly and we understand the dog, um, you know, and then you do something odd like, you know, pick up the dog's paw the wrong way and the dog sort of nips at you because it's still a dog and that's disappointing when you've created this idealized version of your dog. I don't mean to diminish any personalities involved, but I'm just saying we do, um, let's say, project a lot of intuitive understanding onto people that, that they're not necessarily able to fulfill in our life, whether it's a spouse or a boyfriend or a friend. Um, and you went through your share of of dissonance, of coming down from the idealization, um, you know, to find out that your therapist actually had outside lives or, you know, in, in your case, yes, it went further than it normally does, but 
we're only a hair's breadth away from this, I think, Vivian, um, in terms of comforting ourselves with idealized versions of people, um, you know, our grandmothers and people, these versions of ourselves or these so-called memories of, of people that just comfort us and help us get through. Um, I want to also talk about dissociation because it's a word that, you know, we're talking now, your, your wonderful description just now of attachment leading to dissociation, and which is splitting, kind of. You know, you split, you sequester feelings that, that are um, too strong. Um, and then when you lost the atmosphere, were these feelings then without any protection? And how did it work? I mean, to go from the total isolation of being in your own atmosphere to reconnecting with the world. Well, the beauty of, you know, dissociation does not start out as a disorder. I don't like the word dissociative identity disorder. It, It starts out as an adaptation. It should be called dissociative identity adaptation. It starts out being helpful. And then it only becomes mm-hmm. a disorder later in life when it's no longer needed. But I liken it to like an overactive immune system. When you're sick, the immune system keep, kicks in and helps you. But once you're better and you don't need the immune system anymore, but it doesn't want to go away, and then it gets in your way. So um, the task in therapy was um, my therapist tried his his modus operandi, which he did not explain to me until afterward, was to make himself Mm -hmm. as much like an atmosphere person as he could so that I would transfer my allegiance, my my attachment from the atmosphere to him. And then after I did that, I would then be able to uh, attach to other people also. But as I said, the beauty of dissociation is that only parts of, there were, I, I was split into sev- several parts, and only some of my parts had the atmosphere. So other parts were always able to relate to people in the world. And it was, mm-hmm. it was not a shock to the parts that were always able to relate to people in the world, but it was a shock to the parts that had the atmosphere. And those are the parts that got very, very, very dependent on my therapist for a long time while this transition was happening, letting go of the atmosphere and become, coming to trust him as a person. And little by little, I was those parts were able to go back out into the world and make relationships with other people also. But I never stopped mm-hmm. because of dissociation. There were parts of me that always, I still have the same two of my friends from high school and college. Like, I never stopped relating to them. So in that mm-hmm. way, dissociation helps you get along in the world. And I, I also was very curious. One of your um, aspects of your personality was Vivian, the administrator, and she was very competent at carrying out tasks and everything that needed to be done in daily life and maintaining. Um, and, and that, I mean, I think what you're saying, first, I just want to back up a second, to, to what you just said about um, not, not liking dissociative identity disorder, I wonder if any 
of these mechanisms are truly disorders. They are, they are mechanisms that are, I mean, you know, the whole realm of psychology is, 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 is sort of based on the unspoken theory that there are, these are illnesses, sicknesses, um, disorders. When you think about them being coping, coping mechanisms, they're actually survival tactics and really don't have anything to do with being, like, wrong. Um, they just, you know, grow, as you say, beyond the point of usefulness um, and then need to be dismantled. But I think our whole approach to uh, mental health is to dichotomized into black and white. Um, and I thought your, your, your therapist at the end, Sarah, did an amazing job of a really kind of coalescing in, in a therapeutic, in therapeutic language, the ways in which it isn't black and white. Um, and I, I really just appreciate the fact that, you know, you have these various aspects to your personality. Some helped you cope and some, you had to bring along, um, there was an Emily and there was, you know, there were young children, I think, a young girl who was, had not had her needs met, whereas in the atmosphere, all your needs are met. One of the absolutely fascinating times, I thought, in your life is when you went to the halfway house and then you, you developed, uh, you were there with other um, people who were experiencing the same thing and you developed this journal, the Overland Underground, or, yeah, this is close, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but in that time, you listed your, the names that you attached to your various personas. Was that a liberating experience for you when you could finally acknowledge this? Well, I didn't know, when I was living in the halfway house, uh, I had just come out of a year and a half of in in the in a psychiatric ward of a hospital, and then I was living in a halfway house. I started this newspaper called the over. It was that it was called Overing House. So the newspaper was called the Overing Underground, and I put mm-hmm. on the masthead um, that I I got some other tenants to be on the editorial board, and when I wrote their names, then I wrote my name, but then I wrote about four other names under my name. At the time, I did not know that I had what was then called multiple personality disorder. I had no idea. My diagnosis in the hospital, which I found out later when I uh, sent for my records, was schizophrenic. Um, but I, I just wrote those names down, and I I didn't know where they came from. One of them I knew where they came from. One of them was Ellen Willow, and I had she was the mm-hmm. only one that I knew I knew about at the time. But I didn't think of her as an alter personality. I just thought that's my other name, and so I just wrote those names down. They they, ty- they came out of the ends of my fingers while I was typing. And nobody, no, mm-hmm. none of the other tenants questioned them, and I didn't. It was just something organic. I never, I didn't think about it until afterward when I was writing the book, and then I went and looked at oh, that uh, one of the old issues, and I saw them there. So the evidence of the multiple personalities was there a long time before I knew about it. I didn't know about it until I was 46, and that halfway house was I was in my 20s. Mm-hmm. 
And I, I think it seemed as though the most effective um, and communicative therapists that you had were also accepting and acknowledging of the Ellen and um, the, the, the those people inside you, the administrative, um, the administrator Vivian. Um, I, you know, we this this conversation could go on indefinitely. I see that we're going to need to take a, a commercial break here in a moment. But you know, sometimes I also liken it and and tell me if I'm wrong to ideas that like Freud had about, you know, a super ego, a kind of a, a an overseeing self like the administrator Vivian, you know, who were the loving, um, you know, attention seeking, approval seeking little girl, you know, the entities that actually, you know, might be an id aspect, and then, you know, entities that might actually be inside of all of us. I mean, do you relate? I mean, to me, it's sort of not to diminish your experience, which was extraordinarily challenging and difficult at times when you were, you know, in psychiatric um, hospitals, some of which were enormously comforting and brought you the care you needed, like Einstein Medical. But I mean, do you detect that there is quite a bit of similarity to the way other people function in the world? Well, it's, I didn't until I took my writing workshop. The writing workshops were invaluable, but the people in the workshop would say, you know, we could really relate to this. Your experience might be extreme, but it's really just what everybody else feels. You're just putting words to it, and your your experience of it was extreme, but everybody could relate to this. So I found that out in my writing workshop. Yep. I, I had the same reaction. And again, I have to feel appreciation for writing and writing workshops, a circle of like-minded people that make you feel heard. We are going to pause for a commercial break, but when we come back, we're going to continue this fascinating conversation with Vivian Conan, author of Losing the Atmosphere, what it's like to feel as though your own existence might not create any footprints. And when we come back, Vivian, we're going to have to talk about the footprint that you created with this wonderful memoir. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. 
Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Vivian Conan, who's written a very courageous memoir, Losing the Atmosphere. It is a tour de force in terms of a very rare and special first-person account of living with um, a dissociative identity. And we'll leave off the disorder, Vivian, because I I agree with you uh, on that. And I, I, I want to go back to this idea that um, you, you know, whether it's because of the attachment um, disruption, and I suspect it is, um, you put the significance of other people first. Your your mother, um, your mother's well being, and she's she's quite a character. She's wearing Alan Mary space shoes, which I had to look up and found out that you know Steve McQueen wore them, and they're they're these custom made shoes. Um, they practical and comfortable, but it's the only pair of shoes you ever need. Right now, they cost about a thousand dollars a pair. I was fascinated by these details. But your mom, she also is a very, she's very liberal minded. She is the more empathic of the two. But she, in your mind's eye, you were a kind of caretaker to her because, for example, when the dog, when your dog Brownie eventually succumbed to his age and illnesses, you had to put him to sleep. And when you did, as a young child, you exuded sympathy towards your mom to have to go through the experience. Meanwhile, you, as the child, just lost their beloved pet. Um, This idea that you negate yourself or are not fully... Um, acknowledging of the, the the painful emotions that you might have been gone going through, um, how how is it? And, and now you're talking about gaining compassion yourself for yourself in later years. When you write, when you wrote the book, and you read it afterwards, or you hear feedback about the book, how does it help you understand um, yourself? And how has it helped, like, reinforce kind of a positive version of yourself where you've made really a a giant contribution to all of us by communicating your personal, your personal life this way? Well, for one thing, I had the atmosphere because I wanted to be seen and I wanted to be understood. And then the book is called Losing the Atmosphere, so I, I, getting better involved getting rid of that. But conversely, the book has allowed me to be seen and understood in a way that I never could in my fantasy world. So I, I was very, very nervous to show people that I knew about th- this book. Before, before it was published, I... I gave copies to pe- I asked people in my family who wanted to read it. Particularly, I was worried about my brother. So I gave him a, a copy of the book first. And I said, um, if there's anything in here that upsets you or you don't like, um, I'm not going to change it, but I'll change your name. That's what I said. <laughs> and he, he, was, he, he said, um, I'll read it if you want me to, but I don't. I don't care whatever whatever you say is fine with me. I, I'm just glad that you wrote it, you know. So he was really, and, and so he read it, and then then I I was a little relieved, and then I 
I have a lot of cousins, and they know they knew that I was in the hospital, but they never knew my diagnosis then. They didn't know what happened after. So, I part of me was living in the world as a regular person, going to work and stuff, and the other part was in a lot of chaos and a lot of pain. And mm-hmm. I, I would. A sliver of me was living in the regular world and communicating with people, and the the bigger part, 90% of me, was internal. And so when I I wrote this book, now everybody I know was going to see the other 90% that they never saw before. And so I I offered to, to read the people in my family to read the book before it came out. I printed it on eight and a half by 11 paper and had it printed in staples and spiral bound. And I had some copies circulating and without fail, the, the reaction was so positive. It's saying, Oh, I never knew you were, I I never knew you were going through all this. I wish I had known, but they all, Mm -hmm. they all were very positive. So in a sense, what I lost when I lost the atmosphere I gained by publishing the book because I let mm. people see me, the part of me that was hidden, and I'm getting positive reactions. So the book has been very healing for me. First of all, writing it was healing because I had to I had to have compassion for the part of me that I was writing about whatever whatever part I was, like the teenage me at my sweet 16 party or whatever. And so that, I had to step out of myself to write the book and, and then mm-hmm. to write about each part. And so, yes, the book was very healing to write. And now that it's out in the world, I do feel good because people are emailing me who I don't even know saying this book really helped me so much. Thank you. So, yes, the book was, is, is instrumental in that. I, I could say something pandemic. actually. Yes, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. I was going no, to no, say please. something about the audio. Okay, the audio book. I mean, what happens too is I'm a librarian and I listen to a lot of audio books and I know that a narrator can make or break an audio book. And since this book took me 25 years to write and it was so personal, I wanted the very, very, very best narrator that I could have for it because it was my life that I was showing to the world. So for a year, I listened to many audiobooks and I picked, that was like how I was auditioning them. I picked the narrator I wanted, Cassandra Campbell, not mm-hmm. knowing until I looked her up after I picked her that she won many audio awards and it was like asking, um, Meryl Streep to play me in the movie. So I managed <laughs> to track her down. <laughs> I managed to track her down and um, through a studio in California. And the, the reply through the studio came, she, she wants to see the book before she decides whether she'll narrate it. Well, so I sent her a, a copy of the book and she did narrate it. And I am, I am so happy with her narration and also it won two um, finalist awards for the Independent Press Award and the Independent Audio Awards. And when I told my writing teacher, like, I was really happy that I picked this narrator, 
Um, he said, well, it's not the narrator, it's the book you wrote. I said, no, you don't understand audiobooks. I said, audiobook is half the narrator and half the book. So, but when I heard yeah. her, her, narr- her narration is excellent, but I was so, yes. so discombobulated when I first listened to it because I'm listening to an actress talk in my voice. Uh, I already have identity problems. And here I'm listening to an mm. actress talk in my voice <laughs> and talk in my mother's voice and talk in my grandmother's yeah. voice. And e- even though it's an excellent narration, it took me about three listens now I'm totally comfortable with it, and everyone who listens to it loves it. But it's like listening to somebody else playing me. And I, I must say yes. she did an excellent job, but I did have to get used yes. to it. Well, I, I, I really love that you shared that anecdote because, of course, it would sound very strange to hear someone else being you. Um, losing the atmosphere, it's a never, never too late story about growth and possibility for anyone. Um, and it's a testament to the redemptive power of love and writing, I would say. We're going to have to close, Vivian Conan, but it's been delightful to be here with you. Um, I wanted to, at some point, um, acknowledge, again, you were a librarian and an IT specialist, and I feel as though maybe there was some resonance there with a kind of, I don't know, logical left-brain systemic kind of um, thinking and order to your world that may have helped you um, while you were processing all of this. Um, Can you give me a quick yes or no? Because we've just got a minute to go. Well, actually, I still am a librarian part-time. Um, I went back after 20 months of COVID not working. To, I went back in September. Yes, being a librarian helped me organize all the chapters and all the notes as I was writing. Um, and I just want to thank, <laughs> exactly. thank you so much for, for having me on. Thank you so much. It's been a great joy. Um, I do think, too, that, you know, we've learned a lot just in listening to you. I would highly recommend the audiobook of Losing the Atmosphere, and I would just recommend the book in general, The Morning of Yourselves That You Lost, um, and, and how writing the book has almost compensated or has balanced out Losing the Atmosphere. It's a beautiful, beautiful metaphor Um, Thank you, Vivian Conan. And there is a website where you can find Vivian. Uh, Vivian Conan author is the Facebook page, V-I-V-I-N, Conan, C-O-N-A-N, author. And there are so many takeaways from a book like this. I just urge you to read it and make it personal for yourself. Thanks uh, to our engineers, Matt Widener and Aaron Keller to our executive producer, Robert Cialino, and most of all, to you, our listeners. Remember to stay safe, and as the holidays approach, keep connecting. Till next week, thank you for dropping in. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then.